there, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Ian is a visiting fellow there. And we are bringing to you a podcast about various things related to children, mostly the systems that are designed to serve children, but actually, in many cases, end up not doing them much of a service after all. So today we're going to start off with a story about, well, pornography which is, seems to be actually a, a very popular topic online these days. There's a lot of discussion on the right and a little bit on the left, too. I feel like maybe we're reliving the, the 1980s conversation about uh, what pornography does to society and uh, whether the government should be doing more to regulate it. But today we're going to talk about a particularly disturbing aspect of the story. Yeah, because, I mean, when you say pornography, you know, one, one might think of adults and ad adults engaged in sexual behavior. And that's one category of content. But what's really extraordinary is the explosion of imagery related to child abuse, you know, rape, toddlers uh, being abused. I mean, there's some new legislation that's just been released. The New York Times reported that 45 million images and videos of child abuse were flagged by tech companies last year, more than double than the previous year. So there's an explosion of this content online. So the question now is, what's the role of tech companies in both ensuring this content doesn't get up there in the first place, and then also that it's taken down in an expedient fashion? Yeah, I mean, this, this does seem to be an area where I think there's bipartisan agreement about how disturbing this trend is. And I don't think anyone is really entirely clear on why there's been such a big increase in the number of these images, except in part, you know, they don't seem to be taken down. And so, you know, people just add to the stash, and I guess there seems to be a, a certain amount of demand for it. And demand, again, there's a demand by adults who are perversely looking for content related to child abuse and child pornography, but also their kids who somewhat innocently are almost egging each other on, you know, whether it's through sexting or creating peer pressure to create content that's highly sexualized, even of eight, nine, ten-year-olds. But once something gets online, then it can be spread almost instantaneously. So I guess this this question, well, let's start with sort of the big legislative question, which is, do we think tech companies really, you know, should be doing more about this? And, and can they do more about this? Well, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. Why is it that there are 45 million images this year and it doubled? You know, did the tech companies cause that? I mean, that's mixed. Certainly the technology facilitates the sort of the wide distribution. But there's certainly a responsibility of the tech companies to curtail it because this is content that presumably we have enough technology that can identify these images when it's shared in some way, when it's stored. And so there's this legislation that's been recently produced to encourage tech companies to do that, to put limits on the amount of time that this content can stay with, uh, with, uh, on their servers, that hopefully this content that can be identified, and that there's real accountability. Now, of course, there are certain tech leaders who, you know, who don't necessarily want to be personally held accountable, but, you know, with, with great power becomes great responsibility. <laughs> and so if, if on your platforms you've got millions of images of children being abused, tortured, raped, whatever, that's being used for for the pleasure yeah. of your online users, and there's got to be a role for tech companies. Yeah, no, and I think I think that's true. I do remember a few years ago, I wrote a book called "Be the Parent, Please," which got into sort of how to how to parent in this wonderful age of technology. But I remember interviewing actually a friend of mine who worked at the White House briefly in their uh, kind of technology innovation group in the Obama administration, and I sort of asked her, you know, 
a lot of parents ask me about what about filters? Like, can't we can't we find filters that will relieve us or, you know, that will make sure that our kids don't have access to these images? And and she said, you know, half jokingly, she said, you know, that whole thing about information wants to be free. I mean, the Internet is sort of designed in such a way as to sort of make, you know, everybody have as much access to everything as possible. And so a lot of these tech companies, first of all, they're one step behind, you know, some of what's going on. But also, how much incentive do they have to kind of crack down on these things? I mean, the discussion about parents and trying to filter some of the horrible images that are online is pretty recent. And she was sort of saying to me, look, the the amount of money that is there to go into porn versus the amount of money for a couple million parents, maybe, who are trying to filter images for their kids, this is a completely out of balance. Well, yeah. And also, an individual parent might be able to use filtering tools to not have that content appear in their own home, but that doesn't actually reduce the amount of content that's on the internet widely, still widely available. So the, the filters are good, but they don't address the, the fundamental issue of this content is widely available to people who are demanding it. And again, unfortunately, there are enough sources of this content that stick around. But I do, you know, one, you, you sort of go around in a circle with this kind of legislation because then you ask, you know, how is it going to be enforced? And if the tech companies can't even sort of keep up with the images, who is going to keep up with, you know, how many of these images are still appearing after the timeline has expired or, or whatever well, piece right. of legislation. Well, is. that's why all of these things where the the technical solutions can't be the full universe of solutions. There also has to be awareness campaigns, particularly for young people who in, in many instances are voluntarily posting images of themselves, whether nude or scantily clad or dancing in, in crazy ways that more young people and young adults have to understand that this content that you might think is just being shared with your Facebook friends or you're texting it has a high degree of probability to be spread. So it has to be a combination of awareness on the part of consumers as well as tech companies being more held more accountable. Yeah, I was, I was saying, you know, on this podcast, we're definitely talking about a lot of very difficult and, and horrifying problems. But some of this is We'll call it a first world problem. So I was in my local Starbucks the other day, and there were three nine-year-olds who had set up their phone on top of the Starbucks, you know, counter where they deliver your drink, and they were engaged in these provocative dances. I mean, they weren't they weren't removing any clothing, thank goodness. But even the baristas were kind of looking at them like, <laughs> why do you think this is a good place to do this? And there were teenage boys around. I mean, there were just people who were looking at them like, you are engaged in some kind of odd behavior. And it's odd enough that you're doing this in this public forum, but now you're going to post it online for everyone to see. And and I just, you know, the the idea that our social norms have evolved in such a way that nothing is telling these girls that maybe this is not a good idea. Yeah. And, you know, and also online, you know, even though predators may not represent as large a population as it's sometimes purported to be, but you've got folks online with, you know, infiltrating games like Minecraft yeah. and, and Instagram to sort of compel those nine-year-olds to do this. Isn't this really cool? Or share with me those dance videos. Those are so cute. And so, again, there's an awareness component of this that has has to happen for families and young adults and young young kids, that posting this stuff in the first place is actually one of the best strategies to keep it out of the general populace. I talked about in the book and when I give talks about attitudes toward 
the internet, I, I talk about the three P's that I warn parents about, like why why social media is different from everything that came before it. I said, you know, first of all, it's very private in that you often don't know what your kid is doing online. Second of all, it's very public in that everyone else might know what your kid is doing online. <laughs> right. And third, that it's permanent. And that is the thing that we keep coming back to here. I mean, there's some amazing statistic, like two-thirds of college admissions officers are looking at kids' social media pages. Absolutely. Before. I mean, so we know- so the fourth P is punitive. Right. How- <laughs> I'm going to add that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I think that there is this we kind of go back and forth. You know, there there are some advocates who say like, you know, social media and the internet. It's just like everything else that came before it. People didn't like no, comic books different. and motels and whatever. No, it's actually different. And I think parents need to to take more of a role in that. But I do think, you know, tech companies, you know, should be under some pressure here to try to get rid of these images before they get spread around further. Yeah. Well, to change gears to a whole other situation, not so much related to technology, but a tragic story that occurred in New York, which is so emblematic of what happens in child welfare systems. And let me let me just read you a little bit about a young boy, Zamir Perkins, a sweet, adorable child whose nickname was ZP. Zamir, unfortunately, was deprived of food and sleep, thrust into icy showers and relentlessly beaten with belts and sticks by his mother and her boyfriend. And at six years old, Zamir died in agony on September 26, 2016, in the family's Harlem apartment. Naomi, I know these, these stories are such tragedies, and you know a lot more about what happened to this young boy, as well as a lot of the warning signs along the way. Like, what happened here? This case is in the back in the news now because the mother and her boyfriend are finally on trial. And so there's a lot more details that have come out about this case. You know, than were originally reported, there was some, you know, amazing anecdote where the mother revealed that after she already kind of thought the boy was dead, she decided to wait 10 minutes putting on makeup before going to the emergency room or before calling 911. It really is heart-wrenching to read the details of these of these articles. I think that there are, though, important lessons to be learned from them. Yeah. And we should, you know, we should say, you know, these kind of deaths are are very rare. And you can't just make policy based on, on child on cases. child fatalities. In fact, most of the child fatalities that are coming from maltreatment, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes, are actually coming as a result of neglect, not as a result of children being beaten to death like Samir Perkins. I mean, it's, it's happening because children are, are starving or they're living in homes with no heat or a parent has not been watching them and a small child has, you know, drowned in a bathtub or something like that. So those are, those are much more common. But I do think, you know, obviously we can't ignore cases like this. And there are certain patterns that, you know, every who reads these stories recognized. The first is the phrase, mother's boyfriend. That we always come back to. And there is no way around this question. I'm not suggesting that all mother's boyfriends or all stepfathers or anything like that are in any way to be looked at as, as questionable characters. But in so many of these cases, it is not the biological father who is in the home. And there is often some amount of jealousy or there's some amount of difficulty and tension that arises in the home yeah. because there's a child there who is not yours. Right. And I mean, how do we address this? Like, what, what is it that can be identified earlier so that we avoid the abuses that this little boy ultimately had to suffer through? Right. I mean, you know, this this is partly this is the breakdown of the family. And this is, you know, this is unwed motherhood. And this is mothers not understanding or not, you know, being willing to face the fact that 
the biological father of the child is the one who is naturally inclined, and I don't want to just, you know, talk about evolution here, but who is naturally inclined to protect this child. And a non-relative male living in the house is not inclined to do so. So I talk about and you read these these heart-wrenching cases, too, of, I, I say, like, the mothers who stand by their men instead of standing by their children. And that, that, to me, is one of the most difficult parts here because you think, you know, why isn't this – this is the child's mother. Why isn't she doing more? But she wants this man in her life, and she has decided to make that calculation that this man is more important in her life than the children. What leverage does a child welfare system have to shift that behavior? Well, to shift that behavior, not enough. I mean, you know, one of the problems here is that we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. I think in this case, the one of the reasons that New York's child welfare system got in such trouble is that there were many warning signs and visits to this home, even in the immediate, you know, immediately preceding this child's death. And, you know, to be fair, the woman who was in charge of the child welfare system, you know, resigned in disgrace after this case, although there were many more cases in the previous couple of years, which probably should have led to this, but this was the one that provoked the most public outrage. And so she was gone. So now there's a new commissioner, David Hansel, and he has tried, I think, to institute a lot of reforms. Unfortunately, I think the the cycle here with child welfare is very short. So you only have to have been paying attention for about seven or eight years to see the same kinds of things tried again and again. Where, where a high profile case suddenly triggers a whole new set of right. interventions. We're going to put more money into the system. We're going to lower caseloads. We're going to try better training. We're going to try to increase the penalties for people who engage in this kind of behavior. There was some sort of a weird loophole where, you know, children who suffered this, you know, the, the abusers might only be able to charge with manslaughter because they didn't actually foresee the child's death. And so, I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, weird you things you can me? do. But no, exactly. Are you <laughs> kidding me? So, so, the, so, you know, but with someone in that mentality, you know, are they really thinking, oh, I could be charged with murder instead of manslaughter? That's not you have to be sort of, you know, sick to begin with. And I don't, I don't know that these criminal penalties, although they satisfy a certain amount of public demand right. for fixes, are necessarily going to change things. So one of the things that I've written about quite a bit is the use of predictive analytics in trying to address our child welfare problem. And the, by predictive analytics, that's that's data that right, one can right. look so, at. So that, you have, you know, data can make you a better baseball team and it can also make you a better child welfare agency. So you have, you know, tens of thousands of calls coming into child welfare agencies and we have to sort out, you know, what it is that's a serious case and what it is that's not. And we happen to have a lot of data on these families. In particular, we have a lot of data on many families in America, mm -hmm. but in these cases, many of these adults who are being reported, we have data, we have education data, we yep. have criminal justice data, and we have data on TANF, on food stamps, on programs that they're involved in. Right. And, and all these things basically inform what's the likelihood of a right. child being born or raised in a family that has a greater probability right. of neglect or and abuse. And so when a call comes in, when someone says, I think something's going on, we can combine that information from that call with the data we have on the family in order to determine how urgently somebody needs to go out and visit this home. And also, you know, obviously, if there if there's a stepfather or a boy, mother's boyfriend saying, you can't come in now, you know, how much we should make an effort to force our way into that home to find out what's going on behind But is this an doors. Orwellian big brother 
concern? Is, is this a privacy issue that trying to collect all this data about, wait, you're collecting this information about me and you're saying that, you know, my baby's at risk based on some numbers that you put into a system? Well, first of all, we already have this data. I mean, so, you know, if you are worried about the Orwellian aspect of this, you might have, you know, thought about that before you went to collect the food stamps, frankly. But, but, but leaving that aside, okay. I would say that it's not Orwellian and it's not, that it's not sort of doing something before a report has been made. If one of your neighbors, though, calls and says, I hear screaming every night from the other side of the wall and I'm worried about this child who keeps walking out with a black eye, then we use the data and sort of say like, right. okay, we, now we need to understand how seriously to take this call. But I do think it begins to answer the question because one of the things that, that people don't like to acknowledge is that as much as we train social workers and CPS workers to be able to go into a home and try to figure out what's going on, they also have their own biases. You know, it's not just data that, you know, may, may turn out results that you don't like. It's also social workers who are going into a home and many of them don't have appropriate training, but even the ones that do, it turns out that they also, you know, come to the, each situation with their own thoughts about what might have happened and what. So in some sense, the data actually removes a little bit of that mm. bias and, and suggests, no, we actually need to look at the facts of the case, not just what our gut is telling us. This is too big of a problem to rely on our guts. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that's interesting about this data is that in the same way we can use it to identify risk factors for a child in a given environment, maybe if we back it up even more, it could be information that's used to help parents even before they make decisions about having children or what their home environment is or what their relationships are. Because maybe that same mom who's making a decision to get into a new relationship, she needs more information about what the probabilities are of an adverse environment for their kids being created. Right. No. And, and these some of these visiting programs, I know you're actually involved in one at your school, not in the child welfare sense, but in an early literacy, early literacy program, I think, you know, are trying to address these problems earlier and earlier. And, and Start that, early with yeah. the end in mind. Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely important. And, and trying to think about what we can do to put in these supports. Everything from, you know, how do you, you know, from early literacy to how do you even relate to your baby? Like if you have never had that experience of a kind of warm, nurturing environment, you know, even a kind of, you know, teaching the kind of patience you need to have with with toddlers. There are certain programs that exist where you'll have like a mentor mother, you know, who is there to teach you how to at the same time you know, unload the dishwasher and also deal with a toddler who's screaming their head off. Because that level of stress, you know, in a person who doesn't know how to handle it or doesn't know that this is what a child who is too always acts like, I think can can certainly exacerbate problems that are already there. Yeah. And now there's a whole emerging area of brain science, particularly from ages zero to three. If you're not getting the kinds of nurturing developmental experiences, you could do the kind of damage to your brain, which like for folks like us who run school systems starting in pre-K or even starting even at 18 months old with some of our, our younger toddlers in the home visiting program, we're playing catch up from the very beginning. And I think if more young mothers and young fathers had even better access to this information, maybe that would influence their behavior to give their kids a better shot. You know, in some cases, although some, in some cases, these fathers may not be, you know, fit to be good fathers to these kids. 
making sure that even if the father is not in the home, that they remain involved in the child's life. Because what happens is then they are just another adult in this child's life who is an extra set of eyes on them. And who, like a teacher, like anybody else, who is aware when something is going on. And you do, you have had cases across the country, you know, where a father has not been aware of what's going on in the home and has subsequently, you know, either found out that someone is mistreating their child and they blame the system because they say, look, I wasn't, I I didn't have have access, you know, you had access to this child and what were you doing? So this is a, unfortunately, I think an issue that is going to keep coming up. But it's important we learn from these and what we can do to avoid these situations in the future. We have to have the moral courage to talk about these situations. Absolutely. So thank you for another great episode. I am Naomi Schaefer, Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. We are bringing to you the podcast, Are You Kidding Me? from the American Enterprise Institute. You can find more of our writings and the podcast at AEI.org. And we hope you will listen. All right. Until next time. Thank you. 